Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Second Chronicles 13 is where we're going to pick up. Chapters 1 through 9, Solomon's era and kingship and the building of the temple. Chapters 10 through 12, Rehoboam's kingship and the kingdom splitting in two. Took one generation to mess it all up. God holds Rehoboam accountable for his behaviors, despite the fact that he could easily blame his dad. Then we get to Chronicles 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah becomes king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mechaiah, which means granddaughter of Absalom, and the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. So God told Rehoboam, don't make war with the northern country, and uh, he doesn't stop Abijah from doing it. The word Abijah means Jehovah is my father, so at least he got a godly name. Um, we get one story about this king. So there's only three years of, of ruling. Uh, you can read into that, that three years means he wasn't a very good king and God didn't bless his reign. There are some passages that talk about a long reign being a blessing from God. If that's the case, then a short reign means not very blessed by God. So verse 3, Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam, Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. Two to one odds, just like with Rehoboam in Egypt, um, in favor of Jeroboam. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zer Zemarim, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Should you, not, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? So Abijah claims in the battle that he fights for the Lord. We know from Abijah's history that he did not really follow the Lord. But when he goes into battle, he at least puts the name of the Lord out there for the covenant of the Lord. Um, and in this case, Ephraim, if they're in Ephraim, it means they're on the offense. They've attacked the northern kingdom and they're proclaiming that God has called them to do that. So God allows this attack. He doesn't send a prophet that we know of. And then there's this claim of we're fighting uh, with the covenant of God as a southern kingdom. We're doing what God called us to do. The covenant of salt is an irrevocable covenant. It's permanent. All offerings to God, Leviticus 2.3, every oblation of your meat offering shall be seasoned with salt. Neither shall you suffer the salt of your covenant of thy God to be lacking from the meat offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So it says it in three different ways. It's very important in Leviticus that they add the salt. And here we are with um, Abijah saying, like, we do covenants and we do them by salt. In other words, we're keeping the law to the letter of how God told us to keep it. It's also in Numbers 18, if you want to see another reference to that use of salt. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, verse 6, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Son of Nebat means an aspect in the Hebrew. Uh, basically means there's no royal line here. He's not in the line of David at all. There's no promise that's been made to him. 1 Kings 11 shows a little bit of a different side that God actually brought Jeroboam into his position. In Chronicles, we don't see any of that. He's just the enemy in Chronicles. 
So he's a servant of Solomon, emphasizing that he was not in a position to challenge Abijah or Rehoboam. He was supposed to be a servant to those kings. So the, the title that's given him by Chronicles is that he's a, he's a traitor. And verse 7 further emphasizes that point. Then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the, the son of Solomon. When Rehoboam was young and inexperienced, he could not withstand them. So you started fighting against a young and inexperienced king, which fleshes out the accusation a bit here. The thing is, with Rehoboam, he was 40 when that happened. So it's not like he was a spring chicken. He was just new to the kingship. Uh, the use of the phrase worthless rogues needs no interpretation. He wasn't thinking highly of the northern kingdom. They were a bunch of rebels is kind of how they treated him and, and talked about him. Rehoboam was a weak king. He was easy to refuse tribute to because he didn't have his networks in place. Abijah is coming with a much larger army, but the northern kingdom is also coming with a much larger army. Verse 8, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves with Jeroboam made for you as gods. So they've elevated these golden calves after only a generation into kind of an ark-like status. So they're carrying these big golden calves with them. It didn't work with the ark. I don't know why they think it would work with golden calves, uh, but they're doing it. And Abijah is making it not about himself. We know Abijah was, did some sinful things, but in this one story at least, he did one thing right. He proclaimed God's plan and God's covenant. And so we'll see how this goes. Verse 9. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourself priests like the people of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of the things that are not God's? So you've trounced on the law of priesthood. You, you could care less for how God set this up. Abijah is pointing out their spiritual infractions as a northern kingdom. They're doing a false worship, and he's accusing them of that legitimate service of God, we, we see once again, those priests of Aaron and the Levites, they've moved to the southern kingdom. <coughs> and God's going to protect them, and, and I think in this battle too. So verse 10, as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites attend to their duties. Those duties have been continually happening since David. An unbroken line of responsibilities. What Solomon busted was he introduced idol worship into the country. So there was also idol worship, but the services at the temple go uninterrupted. And they burned to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn for every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. That's the accusation. They maintain the temple, the northern kingdom has not, and they've created false worship. I think the writer allows this speech without a challenge, letting the message just sit with us. So they don't get into the particulars of what's going on in the northern kingdom. Basically, the northern kingdom was wrong to leave the line of David, even if Rehoboam was foolish with what he did with them. Verse 12, now look, God himself is with us as our head. And his priests are sounding with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God, your fathers, for you shall not prosper. So there's an invitation to not fight. If you just repent, we don't have to go through this battle. Despite Judah's failings, they call on the name of the Lord and they worship as prescribed. So this is good. 
Numbers 10.9 makes them a promise. If they do it this way, Numbers 10.9 says, When you go into war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with trumpets, which is exactly what the priests are doing here. And you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. This demarks Jeroboam as an enemy when he says his priests are blowing trumpets of alarm. So he's referencing the word of God and using it. Between false and true, God's going to involve himself. There's false worship and there's true worship. It matters not to the chronicler about the personal life of Abijah. He's representing God and he's proclaiming God in this public way, which puts this to be a God versus not God battle. Regardless of his personal life, chroniclers want to point out that if you stand on the name of the Lord, the Lord steps in. Verse 13, but Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them. So they were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind Judah. When Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was both the front and the rear. Throughout all of human history, to be surrounded on both sides by the enemy is a bad battle situation. This is not, in other words, Jeroboam has the better strategy. It also means that while they came out to proclaim things and maybe offer peace, Jeroboam was sending this troop around before they even started doing the proclamations. So he was looking for a fight no matter what. And they cried out to the Lord and the priests sounded the trumpets. Great reaction by the people of God. When surrounded by the enemy, cry out to the Lord and, put, and sound out the trumpets. So this idea of being vulnerable, being in a place where you can't defend yourself, the army is, is outnumbered two to one, they can't resupply, they can't rest, they can't give and take ground because they're trapped between two battle lines. Uh, militarily, this is on the hor horizontal, they are beaten, they are shut in. The battle's over before it starts. Two to one odds and they're surrounded, but the vertical is wide open. Even though they're surrounded, they still can access God in that situation. And that's kind of a, a good place to be. When they cry out to the Lord and they're trapped and they call on the Lord in humility, knowing they're beaten, this is ultimately the place where God loves to save. He loves to take the foolish things of the world and confound the, the strong. So God loves to get to work when we admit that our plans haven't worked, that we've been bested by the world. And God can take that and use it. So they cried out to the Lord and the priests sounded trumpets. Then verse 15, then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Something happened. And it doesn't explain what strike is, but God steps in and something miraculous happens here. And again, we don't get this in Sunday school because we don't know what it was, so it's tough to draw a picture of it. But God just strikes Jeroboam and all Israel, Israel being the northern kingdom. And the children of Israel fled before Judah and God delivered them into their hand. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter, so 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. That's half a million people that get killed in a day. Like the amount of slaughter and blood that this would cause would just be a, a stunning massacre of humanity here. Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. So you got cries, trumpets, shouting. None of this is tactical in a military sense. You know, giving away your position, blowing trumpets is not how you win a war. But all of these, cries, trumpet, and shouting, happen to be acts of worship. They're putting the faith in the Lord where it belongs. Um, Abijah fails, but God wins. It's not a perfect people, but they know who to call on. They know who to trust in this situation. So 
The word strike there for Jeroboam is to hit or strike. Something actually struck or hit Jeroboam. And again, it doesn't talk. It just says God delivered. Um, and then Abijah and his people strike. They're emboldened by what God did. And then they fight and they win. The event in the end tips the balance of power where clearly the northern kingdom had 10 tribes. They had the balance of power. But if you kill 400,000 people, that leaves them with 300,000. And it leaves Judah with 400,000, which means the balance of the military strength goes from the northern kingdom of 10 tribes to the southern kingdom. Judah now has more military strength. And that's going to give them at least a generation of not having to worry about the northern kingdom overwhelming them. Nabajah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him. Bethel with its villages, Jeshanah with its villages, Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah. That's three years. And the Lord struck him and he died. Um, again, I'll point out, 1 Kings 15 paints Abijah as an ungodly king. Chronicles doesn't even talk about his personal life. It only tells this one story. And you got to think the writers of Chronicle are, again, they're trying to convince people to come from Babylon and refound Israel and rebuild the nation. And in doing that, the lesson to be learned here is if we serve God, we don't have to worry about enemies attacking us. And it's just a narrative that builds that worldview. It assumes that we know that Abijah is an imperfect man, but that he's standing on God's word. God saves him in that moment. And so you can be an imperfect person, but when needed and when things get tight, you can call on the Lord and the Lord will be there to sustain you and protect you. And you don't have to be perfect to have God love you and save you and be salvation in that moment. Quite frankly, God saves all of us despite the fact that we're sinners. He enters into our lives when we are yet sinners to come and save us. So verse 21, But Abijah grew mighty, married 14 wives, begot 22 sons and 16 daughters, now the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways, his ways would be that reference to, yeah, we all know this guy was messed up. And his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet Edo, a book we do not have in our Bibles, but it's out there somewhere. God is faithful to his word. He's always faithful. He's consistent, trustworthy. Um, and the writers emphasize the good aspects of Abijah and ignore the negative things. Then you get to his son, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So Abijah rested with his fathers. They buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And in his days, the land was quiet for 10 years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Something they did not say about his dad. This guy was a good guy. The word Asa means healer in the Hebrew. Uh, you have David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, now Asa. The fifth king is a good one. And Asa grows up, he sees his dad Rehoboam, and, and he sees, or his grandpa Rehoboam, and his dad Abijah as ba bad godly examples. And it's interesting when you see Asa that his parents aren't an excuse for him to mess up and follow in that. And that he, he still has a choice. He doesn't have to live the way he, his dad did. He can actually choose to follow God and do something different. I find a lot of hope in that. That the holiness or not holiness of your parents has nothing to do with the holiness you can pursue in your life. You can choose to follow God to the degree you want to. And you're not bound to where you came from. Or else we would see a one-directional downward trend in Israel as each son gets to be worse than the father before. But Asa bucks the trend. He does the opposite. He gets more godly than his father. He pursues God. So what did he do that was so right? Verse 3. 
He removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden images. He was not an idol worshiper, and he got rid of it. In public spaces, it didn't need to be in Judah. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers, to observe the law and the commandments. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. But you can bet, taking down those sources of idol worship, there was contention there. So the fact that he does this, regardless of maybe not being popular with those people that use those spots, he does it anyways because in his role as king, it's his responsibility to deal with public situations like this. So he removes them. He gets rid of overt public displays of false worship. Uh, the altars are a place where you pay homage and you give sacrifice to false worship. The high places would be elevating humans to reach this prided godlike status. Gets rid of those spots. The sacred pillars were used for kind of drunken orgies and parties. Um, it was sexual defiance of God's law. And then the wooden images, they were typically feminized versions of male pillars, and they would put them up in these public places. They were just, it was like pornography. So the sacred pillars and the wooden images tended to go together, pillars being male, the wooden images being female. First uh, Kings 15 says that he banished the perverted people and sent them moving out of the country. You can go somewhere else and go do that sort of thing. His own grandmother, he demoted from office. She was an idol worshiper. Uh, devotion, even with his family, he expected proper worship or get out of the throne room and get out of the, the court. So the association of Asa is that he's on par with King David, according to 1 Kings 15. He had a heart after God's. He insisted on the worship of God, and he took away all visible signs of idolatry. We're going to see in later generations he doesn't get rid of idolatry because he can't change people's hearts. But from his role as king, he can at least say, we don't want to look at this stuff all over our country. So he cleans things up. There's reform. Um, he is publicly, at least, following the Lord in all, that, in, in all his ways. Um, some of these idols and things, I just want to point out, some of these high places were set up during Solomon's reign. So if you go Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, and now Asa, that's four generations old sites. Like in America, these are like heritage sites. We would, if we talk about our great-grandfathers setting them up, we make them a historical monument and put a plaque next to them. And so for him to get rid of these, he definitely would have had kickback from people going, man, that altar's been there for four generations and you're taking it down? And Asa would say, yep, it's got to go. It doesn't serve God, it doesn't honor God, it's got to go. So these places that had active worshipers, he couldn't change their hearts, but he could take away their public use of those things. And again, in Kings, we see that he chased people out of the country that would refuse to repent and refuse to reform. So Asa understands he's accountable for what happens in his kingdom, and he alone is accountable for what happens in his kingdom, just like David. Verse 4, he commanded. He can't force the heart, but he can have an expectation as a king as to the policy. So he changes laws. He changes policies in his country to be more godly and more godly friendly. Verse 5, he also removed. So he, he not only commanded things, but he actually had things removed, including these incense altars for prayers. So verse 5 and verse 3 look a lot alike. Verse 3 is likely for false gods. Verse 5 is high places and incense altars that weren't part of the temple worship. So maybe even high places dedicated to Yahweh, but those high places weren't mandated by the scriptures, so he took them away. 
And the incense altars could have even been to Yahweh, but you're supposed to burn incense down at the temple. So by taking away these kinds of false practices, he also cleaned up the temple practice. He cleaned up Judaism to be more true to what the word says. And God's people, I would say this happens every few generations. Even in the church over 2,000 years, the church has had a series of reforms where we get back to what the word of God says and we return to what it says and we throw off the human traditions that go around it. So Asa is doing a little bit of that with Judaism here and he's getting back to what the word says. Overall, Asa, it says, turns people back to the Lord. The reliance on God is necessary. So in verse 6, and he built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. He had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we've sought the Lord our God and we have sought him and he has given, he's given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. And I just want to point out, this is what God's people do when we're not at battle. We build things. We, we set up defenses. We set up a guard. So verse 1, quiet for 10 years. Verse 5, the kingdom was quiet. Verse 6, the land had rest. Verse 6 again, there was no war, the opposite. And, and uh, verse 6, the Lord had given him rest, rest on every side. So that's six different mentions of getting rest of some sort or another. So one wonders, where is the seventh rest? What does the, the, the divine perfection look like as we've set up be having a mention to rest six times. We often think the greatest blessings in Christianity are the emotive moments. But one of the things that's being emphasized in this chapter is one of the greatest blessings of God is rest. It is peace. And I think sometimes we want those high moments. We want those high places as Christians. We want those highly emotional moments where we feel close to God. We want the incense altars. We want the high places. But one of the greatest blessings God has is simply peace, peace and quiet, and the blessing of not having drama, not having turmoil, not having battles to fight, to just work your job and go to synagogue on Saturday and hang out with God's people and live a quiet, peaceful life. And for 10 years, that's the blessing that Israel gets, just a season of prosperity and blessing. And prosperity here isn't financial. There's no mention of great wealth like there was with Solomon. The, the blessing that he gets is simply peace and quiet and to not be worried about things. So when we're, we might want to look for the high places, we might be missing the fact that one of the greatest blessings of God is stability and peace and quiet. And I just want to point that out. So they built and prospered. When not at war, people build. So verse chapter 12, all these cities are tore down um, and, and here Asa is rebuilding them. Verse 7 reminds us that that security comes from the Lord and there's an important piece of wisdom here. When we have rest, we should be building things up. We should be preparing for times when there isn't rest. And as God's people, how do we build things up? We wash ourselves in the word. We develop our devotion and prayer life. We put up strongholds around our family and around our friends. We pray for those blessings because those blessings are wonderful. One way to test the fruits of God is to think, where do I find peace in life? And where do I find my battles in life? And you can start to see where those battlegrounds are on a spiritual level. But who in my life brings peace? Who do I love to spend an evening with and by the end of the evening I just feel great? Versus who is it that I spend an evening with and at the end of the evening I'm just tired, right? I'm just wore out. And you start to realize that 
when we as Christians hang out with each other, I think the more mature the Christian, the more peaceful the relationship is. There just is there just aren't battles. There aren't there, there isn't posturing. So they sought the Lord. Really, there's no mention of a miracle here in any kind of miraculous way. Just a lifetime of seeking and pursuing God, and the blessing of God is the peace and prosperity. This is outstanding. He built fortified cities, even in a time of peace. God's people, Asa, prepares for guarding or defending God's domain. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't sit on his laurels. He's not lazy about his faith. He is, quote, right in the eyes of the Lord. Not in his own opinion. He's not doing what he thinks is good. But what God says through his word, he's doing it. And according to the word, he's righteous. Encouraging those ready to rebuild after Babylonian rule there, to build things is an honor to God. So as Persia gives peace to the Jews and Ezra and Nehemiah want to lead them back to Israel to rebuild with Cyrus's permission, the thinking here is, hey, when you get peace, it's time to build things. And so again, a great encouragement for those people coming back. Verse 8 says, And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears, so he decreased the size of the military. I don't know if you caught that. He cut it 75% of what it used to be, 300,000 instead of 400,000. That means there's 100,000 more people farming, tanning, blacksmithing, livestocking. Like there's more prosperity because he's got 25% of the military going home to work on the land. So there's going to be prosperity in that. So they carried shields and spears from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All of these were mighty men of valor. Valor. So he's blessed to have men of war, even though he doesn't have war. They're prepared, they're armed, they're ready. You could argue Judah and Benjamin together is actually a larger army than what Abijah had. Either way, there's a strong military and it's coupled with peace. Why would anyone want to attack half a million people? So that creates a defense that they're ready to fight if they have to. And that alone brings the peace. Speak softly, carry a big stick. And that's Asa. So unless you have a, a million people, you're probably not going to attack Israel at this time. Sadly, in verse 9, there are a million people ready to attack them. So they get a challenge. This is during that 10-year peaceful reign. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Merishah and Asa went out against him. And they set the troops in battle in array in the valley of Zephathah. At Merishah. In other words, the Egyptians attacked Judah. They're marching to attack and steal things. And Asa cried out to the Lord, and he said to the Lord his God, and said, Oh, so this is a little different than Abijah. With Abijah, they just cry out to the Lord, but with Asa, they cry out to the Lord his God. It's actually a relationship Asa has with the Lord. And he says, Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power, help us. O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let any man, do not let man prevail against you. You know, when the time comes, 10 years of peace, but when the time comes, he still doesn't put his hope in himself and his half million man army. He recognizes, again, we have two to one odds against God's people. And he recognizes that the real defenses are God's. He's built walls, he's built up cities. But at the end of the day, against two to one odds, all he has is the Lord to protect him. And he calls out like his father's best moment 
Asa has been pre preparing for this his whole life. So Zerah the Ethiopian, and the Hebrew Zerah means rising. Merishah is fairly close to Jerusalem. They've attacked all the way up to the borders of Jerusalem or within spinning distance. It's interesting that the attacks are going to rise from without and hit very close to home. I, I think that the enemy is looking for a way to destroy Judah. And, and they're going to have this kind of thing. So the fact that it's the Lord, his God, that word is true. He's been serving God for 10 years. It's not just God, but it's his God. And he's resting on that God as he goes into this. He's practiced. He's devoted. What Asa does here is not a, a unique moment like his dad. This is simply the outpouring of what he's done his whole life. And the prayer that he has, so it's a great line. Lord, it's nothing for you. A million people, like we, it's hard to even see that far in the distance. Like a million people marching as an army, especially in hill country, they'd be covering the hills like ants. But Lord, it's nothing for you. Great line to memorize. Jesus, it's nothing for you. Every problem I have in my life, every problem my friends and family have, it's nothing for God to deal with it. So if we're going through it, it's because he's permitting that. If there's evil in the world, it is nothing for God to end it. But in mercy, he wants people to repent and turn towards him. So with many, numbers don't matter to God. Help us, O Lord our God. Asa prays for help, but he admits that their work isn't enough. They go out to the battlefield, but they know that the real battle is the Lord's. So we rest on you. This is the seventh mention of rest. So in the chapter, you get those first six that I listed. And you're saying, where's the seventh rest? The seventh rest is in the middle of trial. That all the rest during peace is easy. But when it comes to that moment of trial, that rest is the important one. That's the divine perfection. All the rest of this earth is nothing without resting in the Lord. The Lord can give peace, but the true peace is when we rest in the Lord. We rest on you is what he says. And he says, in your name. They don't write the name that they honor. The name that they, they don't even get this name till the New Testament. But they're resting in the name of God, even though it hasn't been revealed to them yet. The only, the, the, the only name that's been revealed at this point in the Bible is prophetic mention of Messiah. But they don't have the name of the Messiah yet. Yet they're on a battlefield saying, we rest on you in your name. Um, I think it's beautiful. We actually have the name of Jesus that we can call on. And these people were calling on the name of Jesus before they knew the name and God still responded. How much more so when we call on the name of Jesus today will God respond when we cry out for help? Oh Lord, you are our God. Uh, when we go into battles, make the battle his battle. It's easier to have grace and love when you realize it's not your battle, it's God's battle. And in that, we can love the people around us. There is a confidence in Asa's praying that makes this God's cause, makes our cause God's cause. And, and I'm sure in time of need, this is the kind of praying we're being taught and modeled on how to pray. When you're desperate, cry out to the Lord. You may not have trumpets with you like Abijah did, but you do have the Lord with you like, like Asa does. When you come after God's people, you come after God. It's his honor. It's not our honor. And I think that when Asa prays, and you notice there he ends with, it's against you. That they're actually attacking God's plan when they attack God's people. Um, Hezekiah prays similarly, and he's another good king we'll hit on. I just want to, Second Chronicle, when we get to chapter 32, verse 8, I think this is really similar to how Hezekiah prays. And maybe Hezekiah is reading the account of Asa, and he's inspired by Asa. 
But Hezekiah says, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people were strengthened. So I think that what's happening with Israel is there is a history of godly kings that the next godly king has access to and can read about. Likewise, when we read the Old Testament, we have a history of godly people we can model and a history of ungodly people we cannot try to model. But with Asa, we just have this beautiful prayer. A godly king points his people to the Lord and he points the Lord to his enemies, <laughs> right? And so for godly people, we look to Jesus. For ungodly people, we, we tell Jesus to take care of that for us. Um, and I think it's interesting that what Asa is doing here is not just benefiting his contemporaries. It's benefiting the next few generations to come along. It's, benef it's benefiting us thousands of years later. When we fear, we show no faith in God. When we rage, we don't show submission to God. What's left then? What's left is rest. When we rest, we show both faith and submission to God. When we worry, we, we're not trusting God. But when we rest, we show trust in God. We can rest during peace, but we can rest during our battles too. That's the divine perfection, is when you can rest in either situation. Paul said, I've known what it's have to have plenty. I know what it's like to have nothing. I have know what it's like to have peace, and I've known what it's like to have war. And in all things, he has comfort in Jesus Christ. And there's just a blessing to it. Notice the glory goes to the Lord here. There's no record of a human triumph or a human strategy. It's just God in verse 12. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah. They got to watch it happen. And the Ethiopians fled. No record of any human intervention. The Lord simply takes care of a million people. And again, how do you flesh that out if you're trying to make a movie about it? Like, what does that look like for a million people to be struck? And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown. They could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much spoil. So in addition to chasing away a million people, they're both delivered from that, but they're also enriched by taking the spoil. In other words, the million people just dropped their stuff and ran. And they get to go through and just pick up all the stuff that was dropped. Um, and then they defeated all the cities around Gerar. That's the Egyptian border. For the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they plundered all the cities. For there was exceedingly much spoil in them. They, a lot of that spoil was stuff that was taken away from Rehoboam. And so they're, they're simply, you know, there's this gold going back and forth. Verse 15, they also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance. And they returned to Jerusalem. And they go back home and they're better off than when they went in. A lot of trials that God allows us to have, if we can call on his name in the middle of it, we actually leave more enriched than when we went in. And the trial actually benefits us in that we put our faith in God and we see that faith as was well-deserved as God navigates us through the trials. When we give up on ourself, our worry, our, our anger, our hesitation, our shame, and we hand that to God and we simply live for him, the, on the other end of that is a stronger Christian. And Asa sees the same thing. So what does Asa do with this great victory? He doubles down on his devotion and commits it to God. For chapter 15, they return from this huge victory. Temptation would be to puff up and be living large on all their loot. But God warns them off of this. And God steps in, and this is unique. Usually God steps in. He stepped in with Rehoboam when he's about to make a mistake. 
And God steps in here, I think, because Asa has been obedient for 10 years and he's coaching Asa to not let this victory go to his head. So now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, who's a prophet to Judah. And he went out to meet Asa and he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Simple. And again, it's a reminder. If you're with God, God's with you. If you want to go off on your own and forsake God, God doesn't, is not obligated to be with you. And so even though Rehoboam and Abijah, we just got a story that God was with Abijah, it's not that Abijah was with God, it's that God was protecting his plan and his promise through Judah, and Rehoboam was there. So it's just and it's right. The prophets, I think, respect this idea. Asa's faithfulness in accepting the promises came with peace, and 10 years later, he saw the benefits of that in war. But that warning from a prophet typically comes as a response to a temptation that Asa could have. And that is thinking that he's all that. So Asa uniquely gets the word as an affirmation of his past work and a confirmation of that he should continue in the path that he's in. Right? So usually when a prophet shows up at a king's doorstep, the king screwed up. In this case, the king hasn't screwed up. The prophet's just there to say, keep doing what you've been doing. If anything, the Bible shows us that God is always faithful. And it says here that if you seek him, he will be found. I think this is one of the passages where Jesus got the knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. So the same thing that Jesus taught. Matthew 7, 7, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So the opposite's true too. If you don't knock on the door, the door will stay shut. If you're in the flood and you didn't get in the ark, there's nothing waiting for you outside. The enemy loves to paint a picture of a hateful God. The Bible never paints a picture of a hateful God. God's guiding, and if we forsake him, he, he's not going to be there for us. That's a just God. God gives just what we ask. All too often, we can blame God for respecting our rebellion, and yet God's not responsible for our rebellion. We rebel against him, and he says, okay, go ahead. We can also point to the actions of bad people and blame that action on a holy God. Why does God allow bad people to do bad things? Because God has allowed a free will, so in the hope of love, free will has to be given in love. So next is a really cool, I think, prophetic passage. This guy walks up, this, this Azariah son of Obed, he walks up and he drops this bomb. And I think part of why Asa gets this prophecy, which is an amazing prophecy, is because he's done the right thing and God blesses him with revelation. Part of following the Lord and being faithful and following the Lord is that you get more revelation as you do that. So here's the passage. Uh, there are a number of things here um, that are in the past tense, yet when you look at the Hebrew, they're not there. And so you may have some words in italics. I'm going to read without some of those words so we get this in the Hebrew a little truer. Verse 3, For a long time Israel, without the true God, without a teaching priest, without the law, but when, their trouble, when, when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he is found by them. And in those times, no peace to the one who went, went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation destroyed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Asa's thinking, like, what are you talking about? 
What this is is a, is a poetic and prophetic verse about what's to come. It's prophetic. So verses 1 and 2 speak specifically to Asa, Asa, and then verses 3 through 7 are a word from God that don't have a time stamp on them. There's no past, present, future here. Um, the Verse 3 is um, yom rad yom, an era, a time in time. There's no season there. Um, it means day long day, literally in, in the verse. In other words, it's going to be an era coming. So when it says, verse 3, for a long time Israel without the true God, it means yom rad yom, there is a period of time without the true God. There will be a period of time where Israel does not hear from God. And you have this passage, and it keeps moving forward. And again, this is fairly poetic. It goes, yom rab yom. Then it says, lo Elohim emet Elohim. You can hear the repeating of words, right? Which means sure, steady, and faithful. So there will be a day-long day where there is no God, firm God. And then it says, lo kohin yara kohin. No priests, teaching priests. There's going to be no priests that teach the word of God as it's meant to be taught. And then lo Torah ends up with a single word. Torah means law, direction, or instruction of word. There'll be no law. There's going to be an era with no God, talk, no firm God talking to you, no priests teaching what priests should teach, and no Torah being delivered accurately. So Israel's going to have a season with no firm evidence from God, no inspired teaching, and no word from God. A time when the priests stop teaching and start Phariseeing. And you know that's sad, you see. So, verse 4, subsar, subsar, return, trouble, trouble, return. And again, this is a very poetic passage, but it's speaking of eras to come and what's going to come for Israel. And I, for me, this is really faith building because I love how God tells what he's going to do before he does it, and then he does it. And then he says, remember the works of God. And we look back and we remember this. So the more we know this, I think it's faith building that God keeps his promises. And he does it perfectly. They're going to see trouble return. And their job is to seek God the same way they sought God against the million man Ethiopian army. There will be some troubles. And these troubles, however, are going to draw out many people to seek the Lord. Israel's going to have a season where God doesn't talk to them. And what's going to happen is many people will start to turn to the Lord. And it won't be the priests, and it won't be the Pharisees, but there's going to be people that seek the Lord because they simply haven't heard from him for a long time. And then it says this really interesting phrase, he, God, was found. The people are going to seek God, and God is going to be found by them. He's going to actually show up. There's going to be a long period of time with nothing from firm God, and then there's going to be, the people are going to find him right there among them. And then verse 5, het em het, time the time. They, <laughs> the time or they is a group. It's not Israel, but it's they. In other words, it's not necessarily just Jewish people that are going to find God. Et hem het. There is a time that they, in this time, it's going to be the time of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. There's going to be a mix. It's one way to read this prophecy. So there's no peace for him going in and out. If it's prophetic of Jesus, he did not find peace in Israel. It was not just the Israelites that heard from him. God, Jesus was God incarnate who came after a 400-year period of silence with no prophets, no firm word of God coming to them. What comes after this, quote, vexation? Confusion, a time of troubles, the beginning of sorrows. 
There will be a great confusion from this time, and people will stir their vexations. It's a reference to Jesus that he uses for the end of days. Jesus actually quotes this along with Isaiah to talk about the end of days. So there's going to be a time. Israel will hear from no, but will not hear from God through a prophet. That's about a 400 period, year period of time between Malachi and Matthew. Then God's going to show up. And that's going to cause vexation. Like now people have to choose between Jesus or not Jesus. And there's going to be a season of that. There's going to be this time amongst time when there's Gentiles that are part of this um, vexation that comes on, but also people seeking the Lord and following him um, in mass. And then verse 6. So nation destroyed by nation and city by city. Again, no past tense in there. And I think sometimes translators are trying to make it easier to understand, but sometimes the Hebrew is actually perfect. And it was, it was meant to be said that way. Um, again, this is part of what Jesus quotes. Uh, Mark 13, 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. He's directly quoting what, what is being said to King Asa here. It's interesting as we go through the Old Testament, because we're going to get into prophets after Chronicles, right? Every iteration of prophecy gets clearer and clearer. It's like the focusing mirror at the optometrist when they say, is this one clear or is this one clear? And with every one of those little switches, you get closer and closer to clear. That's how prophecy works in the Old Testament. And we are early on in the process where you're like, I don't know, they both look blurry. And this is really broad strokes that are getting painted here, but it's also... If read as Jesus read it, it's actually right on target. And we're speaking about the entire future of the world in one paragraph. Matthew 24 lays out 10 more specific descriptions of what we're going to see at the end of days. That's a good study for when we're in Matthew 24. But this time of troubles, this getting clearer and clearer as what's going to happen next, Jesus goes on to warn about persecution and a world that's going to hate his name and that his followers will go through troubles. Um, if there's hum human humanity's confusion about God, even after we find Jesus, there's going to be strife or capital T trouble that comes with that. Time, time of their, their times. And then verse 7, But you, be strong, and don't let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Jesus often talked about the role of the church as one of working in a field. And he also talked about work being that of a mother giving birth to a baby in the end of days. There was the work of the labor of women and the labor of men, both referenced in the time of troubles. So God's heart help is to reward those that endure, to help and bless them. You got troubles that look like a million-man army? Just wait till the time of troubles. It's going to happen again when it looks unwinnable. It looks overwhelming. But our job is to go to the vertical, look to the heavens, and cry upon the name of the Lord. Blow some trumpets if you feel like it. But that connection to the Lord never goes away, no matter how strife-looking this gets around us. Jesus concludes with the same thought. He quotes our chapter. Then Mark 13, 13, Matthew 24, he says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Again, he's pulling these prophecies and bringing them right into there. Stick to it. Don't look back. Put your hands to the plow. Don't turn around. There's harvest to be had. There's work to be done. What's the work? That's revealed later. Go read a gospel, right? That, that part of the prophecy gets clarified. Asa is faithful. He's trusting. He abides in God. He's blessed with 10 years of peace, 
but the real peace comes when he's put into a trial and then the gift or the reward for getting through that trial and trusting in the Lord, he gets a revealed prophecy of the world given to him. That's like getting a magic gift, right? Look, you get, the, you get this magic bean and it's going to show you other things. And so part of what God blesses Asa with is a look into the future. Notice this trend. When God's people do God's will, he will reveal prophecy to them with another nugget and another piece of clarity that points to Jesus Christ and the time of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus lives and went through his three-year ministry, died on a cross and rose again, he fulfills over 600 of these little glimpses that we see in the Old Testament to a letter. When in doubt, look at the faithfulness of God. Look at Israel if your faith is struggling. Look at what he's done for Israel because he makes a lot of those promises to you. In fact, there's more promises to us Christians in this era than there were to the people in Asa's era. So, you shall be rewarded. The phrase there says, no peace. It works both ways. If you don't know God, you don't know peace. And if you do know God, you do. There was t-shirts in the 80s like that. No Jesus, no peace. And they would switch the spelling from K-N-O-W to N-O. God troubled. So they could see the contrast. They could see the difference. Who's the harsher master? The Ethiopians and the Egyptians taking all these cities and territory or the protection of God where they get all the cities back again? And God shows them between Rehoboam and Asa the two options they have as a nation. Serve God and be blessed and protected. Don't serve God and watch your nation get withered away to nothing. Here's the principle. God is unchanging in his promises. He's reliable with or forsaking us based on if we are with or forsaking him. He'll be consistent and he'll give us what we want. If we want to be with God, he'll be with us. If we want to forsake him, he'll forsake us. He essentially gives everybody exactly what they ask for. And he's faithful in that, historically. Verse 12:8. Um, Nevertheless, they will be his servants that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. That's an interesting passage. Be strong and don't let your hands be weak, as in our chapter. Stick to it, keep at it, don't stop, abide in God. John 8, 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. We prepare, we work, we build cities, we grind it out. There's a blessing in the piece of work, and there's an eternal promise that we get that Asa didn't. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. If we align our will with God's will and we pray for things that are God's will to do those things, God will do things at the answer of our prayers. What an amazing promise. What a benefit to serving God. That when needed, he'll be there for us. And when we ask for things, he will respond to those requests. God's not a debtor. When we give our hearts, he fills them because he won't be in debt to us. And we get to verse 8. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed the prophet... He took courage, as we should too. God's in charge of all of it. And he removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt from, with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw the Lord God who was with them. Guess what? When you serve the Lord, there'll be Christians that come flocking to it. 
And so again, we get, in, especially in verse 9, another reference to a migration from the northern kingdom to Judah. Those people that wanted to serve the Lord picked up their stuff and they moved. And they went to where God was being worshipped. Uh, also, all these cities they just retook from the Egyptians um, by beating the Ethiopians. Like they're clearing the idols out of these places too. So as they take territory, they purify it. So Asa gets working. He doesn't lay, sit on his laurels. Uh, he continues to work through his kingship and responds to God's blessing by doubling down on his service and commitment to the Lord. When you see God at work at your life, you don't say, oh, good, I'm done. You say, oh, good, let's do more of that. So he took courage. None of this was easy. Um, I think fighting permissiveness in a culture, tradition, people, um, false gods, to fight lethargy, you have to take courage to do that because you're telling people no. No, we're not going to do that here. No, you can't open that shop in our town. And when you start doing that as a king, as a civic leader, you have to have some courage because there's going to be people that don't like what you're doing. And we're going to see that Judah struggles with idol worship even after this cleaning of house. They came over to him. This migration happens. Purity is a witness and living for God is worth it because the people of God will see that that's happening. There's a blessing. What's the best way to eliminate an enemy? Make them your friend. So instead of beating the northern kingdom here, the northern kingdom starts migrating south, and it says in great numbers, which further tips the balance of power to Judah from the ten tribes, is that people are coming because they love the Lord. Chronicles doesn't miss an opportunity to point out this unifying of Israel or that all tribes were involved in the work of God. So I think as we see Chronicles, it really minimizes the northern kingdom, but it continues to point out how godly people from the northern kingdom moved to the Judah because Judah was the plan of God and the promise of God. Verse 10, So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls, 7,000 sheep from the spoil that they had brought. So they give, get a portion from God, they give a tithe back to God, a portion of it. Then they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God with their fathers, with all their heart, with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether great or small, whether man or woman. And then they took an oath before the Lord with loud voice, with shouting trumpets and ram's horns. Deuteronomy 17, when it comes to Israelites that insist on idol worship, there was a stronger punishment for Israelites that serve false gods. Gentile nations were to be pushed out or driven out. But when Israelites wanted to follow false gods, the instruction of Deuteronomy is they were to be put to death. So there's a higher accountability for people that have a higher revelation. The more you know about God, the more you're accountable to live for God. And so this is one of those things where people are like, dang, if they didn't follow the Lord, they're being killed? It's like, yeah, because they knew better. And they had seen things from God, and they were to be God's representatives as a nation. So there's anything but lukewarm going on in the nation under Asa. Uh, they're going to keep each other accountable. There's going to be no wavering. Um, they want what their forefathers had when it came to the purity of the nation. They want what Moses had after he had trained in Israel. Joshua, Gideon, David, Solomon. They wanted those blessings. So the claim of a relationship with God is backed up by actions that support what God asked them to do. And then they claimed on an oath that was made to their forefathers, and God honors that oath. And the result is joy. There is shouting and there are trumpets. So they make a loud noise because they're happy to live for God. 
Living for God, it brings more peace and more joy, and there's a Holy Spirit going around the country right now. A spirit that says, we don't need the garbage, we don't need the vain idols, we want to serve the Lord. Verse 15, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them. Seek and you will find. And the Lord gave them rest all around. That's an eighth mention of the word rest. So now we're back to that theme in this chapter or in this part of the, the book. One of the greatest gifts of God is an uneventful life, <laughs> like just a peaceful life and, and the rest that they're going to get. They sought him. They did it together. They made sacrifices. They made covenants. They gave their heart and soul. Sounds a lot like salvation. This is how we act. They're accountable to their actions. They live in community and there's actually joy to be had in doing that. It's a better way to live life. Do it under God's law, do it with joy, and there's just a happier way to live. And it says he was found by them, just like he promised. There's no record of how, just what they did and that they did. So it doesn't give us an instruction book on how to do this. Just the fact that it happened. They obeyed the Lord, they trusted him through trials, they were faithful to get the garbage out of their lives as a nation, and God blessed them as a nation for doing that. Verse 16. He also removed Maaka, the mother of Asa the king. <laughs> like he gets rid of his gets rid of his own mom from being queen mother because she'd made an obscene image of Ashtaroth, a fertility goddess. You can guess what the image is of. And Asa cut down her obscene image and then crushed and burned it by the brook Kidron. So mom, get out of here. You can't be in the court anymore. And this idol you built is going to go down. I'm going to burn it. So Asa deals not just with the nation around him, but he deals with his own family too. And I think this is important as Christian. When there's evil rising up in your home, you got to deal with it. You got to remove it and end it because you can't just have that in your house all the time. It will disintegrate your home. It will destroy your hearts. And to have that kind of rebellion going on, Asa deals with it and says, I can't have rebellion in my own household. And at the very least, we're not going to have that obscene image hanging on the wall or sitting in the middle of the courtyard or wherever it was. And then in verse, uh, verse 17, but the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal in his days. Like Chronicles like, and he wasn't perfect. Like he wasn't Jesus. He's not the savior. The high places were not removed. The argument here, because earlier verses says the high places of the false gods were removed. Likely these high places are ones dedicated to Yahweh. So there's still remaining high places in these newly conquered cities, um, and they're not removed. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. So he removes the foreign gods. He leaves a couple of these spots that aren't the temple. They're, they're not part of the commandments of, of Leviticus. And the chronicler makes the commentary here that God blesses his heart because he knew his heart was in the right place. So God actually sees the heart. He knows what to recognize. And the uh, commentator here points out that the heart of Asa was loyal all of his days. Verse 18, he also brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver, gold, and utensils, which is an indication that Abijah did um, respect the worship of Yahweh, even if he did some other things wrong. And there was no war until the 35th year of the reign of King Asa. So in all, he gets to reign for 35 years with one battle with Ethiopia in the middle. 
that's a pretty good peaceful rain. And it's interesting because 30, 35 years, we get virtually no history because peace is the reward. So for 35 years, that's a season of prosperity, worshiping the Lord, being at the temple, building those traditions that God's established. The feasts are happening every year. And at the end of the day, Asa gets well done, good and faithful servant. He did a good job. And so sometimes I think, the, the thing about peace is you'll hear people that grow up in Christian homes and they say things like, man, I wish I had a more exciting testimony. Because they'll always put people on the stage that, you know, have gotten out of drugs and, you know, you know, remove themselves from these horrid situations. They have these very exciting conversions and turnabouts and whatnot. But if you ask those people, they would say, oh, no, no, no. It, I much rather would have grown up in a Christian home. I much rather would have an unexciting history behind me because the real blessing is peace and family and joy and fellowship. And it doesn't make the news and it's not a flashy testimony, but it's an amazing blessing that God gifts to his people and the children of his people that grow up in peaceful homes. So if you've grown up in a godly home, place of peace where God's law is attended to, that's a huge blessing that God's given you. And it's not flashy, and, it, and, and, and our hearts that want that maybe need to be tempered a little bit, because what's really wanted is a good and faithful servant. So if you've grown up in that kind of home and you have those kinds of parents, say thank you. Let's call your parents. Say thank you for giving me a good home to grow up in. And having a 20 years of peace before I made my own chaos in life. You know, if you've been married for a long time and your spouse is not a dripping faucet or a, a domineering tyrant, go to your spouse and say, hey, thank you for 20 years of great marriage. Thank you for the peace of 30 years of marriage of peace. And I say that to my own wife. Thank you for 30 years of a joyful marriage. You know, thank you for just year after year of having peace in my home and not having chaos and arguments. What a blessing that is. Those of you that didn't grow up in a Christian home or you don't have that kind of family, pray, cry out to the Lord God Almighty and find your peace in Jesus Christ. Start with the vertical relationship even when you're surrounded by troubles. And look for your peace in Jesus. That's where it all begins. That's where it starts. Amen? All right. Dear Lord, thank you for these chapters in Chronicles. Thank you for the examples as we go through Chronicles. Just king after king that have very different lives and different ways that they've followed or didn't follow you. And Lord, we get these complex examples to study and look at and reflect on. And Lord, may we seek you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, may we love you and, and, and love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, if we do these things, we are walking in your path and the reward sometimes is peace. So Lord, I pray for peace. I pray for peace for our families, for our cities, for our nation, for this world. Lord, we ask for the blessing of peace and we ask for your spirit to be there. Lord, if there's a, a wicked way in our hearts, um, purge them out and get them out of our lives. Lord, if there's any high places in pride, if there's any low places with Asheroth poles, if we're pining after sin in any way, shape, or form, Lord, just purify that from our hearts and get rid of it. Lord, may we, may we just kill the desire to sin in our own hearts and may we have peace and rest in doing that. Lord, if we have these things in our home which are distractions for your kingdom, Lord, convict us and get rid of them because we just want to give our lives to you and time is short. So we give you our hearts and our minds and all that we do. And Lord, bless the people in this room tonight. May your word sink deep into their ears. In Jesus' name.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.